Hello, welcome to Influencers Cafe. Today on the show, repeat guest, talk about transhumanism, Fazal Rana. How's it going, buddy? Hey, Nikosh, how are you, man? So I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the show again. Yeah, well, it's uh, great to be on the show with you, and uh, thanks for thinking of me, and uh, looking forward to the time we're going to uh, hang out. So we managed to uh, we have a board before and after now, because the last time we talked on the show, we the world was normal, and we were talking about transhumanism, and uh, lo and behold, transhumanism has all the excuses they want now to basically uh, play, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting when you contacted me and suggested, hey, we talk about the, the relationship between COVID-19 and, and the transhumanist agenda. I thought, oh, wow, that's that's interesting. And, and I didn't quite put two and two together, I think, as forcefully as you did. And, and as I began to think about it, it's like, wow, you know, this, uh, this whole COVID-19 pandemic and really our response to the pandemic is really uh, greasing the skids for people that are looking to implement the transhumanist agenda. Never waste a good crisis. <laughs> That's right. Something like that. Yeah. You know, uh, well, you know, I mean, it's interesting to me because, you know, at the heart of transhumanism is this idea that science and technology are going to be our, our salvation, right? That, that uh, through science and technology, we can modify our, you know, our biological makeup uh, so that we can overcome our limitations, we can, you know, enhance our capacities beyond our, our biological limits, that, that we can correct flaws in our biological makeup, and that through that process, we could even take control of evolution, ushering in a, a post-human era where, you know, through technology, we create these uh, species that would be post-human, that would be, you know, so different that we wouldn't recognize them as, as human beings. And, um, but ultimately, undergirding all of that is that the, the, the solution to our existential crisis as human beings, which is our personally our own immortality and collectively our, you know, the prospects of our extinction as a species can be solved through science and technology. And and, and what are we doing when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic is that we are have literally to the uh, have literally surrendered complete control to scientists and to people that are biomedical technologists. It's almost as if uh, whatever the scientific community pronounces, everybody feels as if they have to immediately get in line and and follow those marching orders as opposed to using that information as valuable insight. Uh, to help us you know, manage the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But in many instances, it's almost as if this is what the science says and everybody needs to fall into line. This, this is what the scientific community is recommending we do in terms of public health practices or in terms of biomedical treatment. So we all need to fall in line as opposed to you know, carefully evaluate those proposals. But it's that whole mentality that science is going to save us uh, which is the shared mentality of the transhumanist movement that I'm beginning to see uh, that I think is one point of, of connection. And once you, you move a, a culture in a society to the point where they are looking to science as a solution to all the problems uh, and are granting science complete and total control and authority, then um, 
then you really have, I think, in part made the transhumanist agenda that much more uh, palatable, that much more reasonable to people uh, where science is going to save us. Uh, You know, that that's the only hope that we have. Yeah, what's quite shocking is that there's there's about 200,000 absolutely tragic deaths that have happened, um, well, probably more than that. Um, But the death rate was relatively low, 1% or 2%, give or take. And yet people gave away, gave up their freedom so so easily. So if it was if it was like 5% or 6%, 7%, and uh, anarchy was breaking out and people couldn't get water and food, then you can imagine what people would put up with that would be absolutely, it would make this lockdown look like um, a picnic. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, (laughs) I think so. I mean, there's so much of the reaction that I see is, is based on fear, right? You know, the, just, you know, absolute, you know, fear. And as a result of that, I think, you know, it, it, um, people are are doing things that I I don't think necessarily reflect an enormous amount of thought. It's just how do we put ourselves in a position where we can avoid, Again, you know the, you know the, the 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 threat to our personal existence, the threat to, you know, our loved ones, and and the threat to our 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 way of life, really. And so, you know, again, that that spirit of, of fear, I think, uh, you know, is something that the the transhumanist agenda actually plays off of. That we are afraid of death. You know, we we are afraid of. Of not having hope, purpose, and destiny, and so people, instead of turning to the gospel, are are turning to science, and and really the the promises that come from the scientific community more so than anything else to to try to assuage those fears. Okay, so you mentioned there the transhumanism transhumanism agenda. So I guess a lot of the the general public who haven't come across that term might be wondering, what does that mean? Can you just distill your thoughts on what that actually, what you believe that is? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, transhumanism, uh, actually, it surprises me how, how frequently I encounter people that have never heard of it, or if they have heard the term, they've got a very uh, incorrect understanding of what transhumanism is. Sometimes they mistake it for transgenderism. But but this is a cultural and intellectual movement that basically says science and technology is going to be the way to our salvation, that science and technology will allow us to create a utopian future. And um, and, and the, the specifics are that we should use advances in uh, science and technology to modify our biological makeup as human beings, uh, again, to overcome our limitations, to improve upon our flaws. Uh, the, I, the view is that human beings are the product of evolution, and as such, we're currently as, as a species at a way station in our evolutionary journey. So why not take control of our own evolution with technology and evolve humanity into uh, uh, species that are perfectly suited for an advanced technological civilization? Uh, and and you know, for many people, they see transhumanism as a way to attain practical immortality through by extending our life expectancy and and this idea has been with us for decades 
uh, in a modern conception. And, and most people would not have taken this idea very seriously, even uh, as much as a decade ago. Uh, it's always been a, an idea that's been explored in, in science fiction, but nobody would have taken the idea seriously beyond that. And yet we now suddenly have advances in things like CRISPR gene editing or computer brain interface technologies, anti-aging technologies that suddenly give us the capability of actually doing what transhumanists would like to do, which is, again, to modify our bodies. And, uh, and, and the technology now is there uh, to begin to explore the, in a serious way the transhumanist vision. And the, the, the thing that's you know, uh, complex is that the very technologies that transhumanists want to make use of are also those same technologies that have a very important biomedical applications that literally could, in a positive way, transform medicine and allow us to treat a number of diseases and injuries that people suffer from, for which we currently have very uh, little by way of, of offering any kind of, of medical hope. And so, uh, so you know, that in and of itself leads to the 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 idea that if if we deploy these technologies in medicine for for good and high purposes, we become accustomed to these technologies, and then to to take that next step and that next step and that next step to using these technologies for enhancement. Suddenly, people are going to find themselves on a trajectory towards the transhumanist vision, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. So just to to let our listeners know, me me and Fazal are not anti-science we both have science backgrounds we both enjoy science and we both see the benefits of increased um, medical uh gymnastics i guess <laughs> you know we both we, we we both want to live longer you know we we um we want technology to to improve our lives and to you know cure cancer and and make old age more and more enjoyable and um you know but um You know where, where we are also in the book. You know the book also says that there are some advantages, of course, but there is also uh, a group of people that probably are just um, happy to go along with the so-called medical benefits, and then take this to the the better end, which we don't know what it will that look like. Yeah, you know, and, and to to build off of your point, you know, I'm glad you you you, you made that point because again, we are not anti-science. It, it, as a Christian, I think science is a wonderful gift from God to us, you know, and, and that the technology that we develop is, I think, part of our biblical mandate because we want to mitigate pain and suffering in the world. We want to improve the human condition. We want to see human beings flourish because we recognize human life has infinite worth and value and that to not achieve their potential as a human being is really tragic from a Christian worldview perspective. But to me, I think that the place where I depart is that, uh, that th this idea that while science and technology can be wonderful tools for us to love our neighbor as ourself, for, for us to take care of the environment, uh, it, it, these are not things that we should ultimately root our hope, uh, purpose, and destiny in, that really our salvation comes through the person of Christ. And what we're waiting for to see the ultimate utopia ushered in is the return of Christ. Uh, whereas with transhumanism, the, 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 you know, the, the, 
the hope is ultimately within science itself. And the history of technology is to recognize that technology is a double-edged sword, that it can lead to good things, but it can also have unintended consequences. And uh, many times those unintended consequences uh, wind up creating problems that are worse than what we tried to solve initially with the technology. And you can wind up in this, this spiral, this downward spiral where you then try to develop new technologies to solve the problems that technology causes. And that in turn is going to cause new problems. And it goes on and on and on. And of course, we also recognize that technology can be used for good, but it can be misused. And as sinful human beings, you know, we we have this propensity to take that which is good and use it for evil purposes. And the more powerful the technology, the more devastating that can be. So I think what you and I are bringing to the table as Christians is just simply uh, a, a very strong word of caution that technology can be wonderful, but we shouldn't look to technology to ultimately save us. And and that's what transhumanism is about. And you can begin to see that that mindset in play as people are looking to science to to figure out the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And again, many times just going along with whatever's being proposed without critically evaluating, you know, uh, like in the United States, we, you know, we took rather draconian measures, <laughs> you know, to tr- try to curb spread of the COVID-19 disease. But in the con- as a consequence of that, uh, I don't think people appreciated the the, the, the ramifications of actually causing an economic slowdown. And so the public health concerns as a result of that may be even worse than what would have resulted from the COVID-19 spread, you know, because now people are struggling with mental health issues because of unemployment, you know, because of being quarantined, uh, you know, staying at home, uh, you know, not having adequate social contact with other people, um, you know, we, when when people uh, lose jobs, they lose in the United States health coverage. So people are not getting adequate health care. We diverted all kinds of medical resources to treating COVID-19, which means people with other medical conditions are not getting treatment. There's a strong inverse correlation between the level of poverty and the quality of health care, particularly in marginalized communities. So these are all, you know, devastating side effects of you know, the public health policy that we have been implementing, uh, which is a technology, you know, medicine and, and public health are really medical technologies. Uh, they're not, it's not, we shouldn't conflate them with science itself. And because of that, there are these unintended consequences uh, that are doing uh, damage, maybe even more damage than, than sadly the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, this is the, this is the danger when you put trust in in, in the pronouncements of science without critically thinking it through or without critically evaluating what those un- unintended consequences are. And so with transhumanism, it may be wonder- a wonderful thing to use gene editing to treat people with genetic disorders who otherwise wouldn't have treatments. But you, you now are on that pathway towards using genetic modifications, maybe not for you know medical purposes, but, but but for enhancement purposes with the idea that these enhancements are going to improve my life. But what, but then you don't think through what are the unintended consequences. And once 
you've genetically modified yourself, there's no point, there's no going back, right? And, and so, uh, you know, that's the real concern is you, you, you might be deluded into thinking technology is going to save you when in fact it may actually, you know, uh, condemn you to uh, uh, a rather miserable existence. Yeah, so we're essentially, we have a transaction here. We're trading one set of medical problems for another one at the expense of the economy um, just because, I mean, there's a lot of political pressure to do lockdowns. Um, and I guess it's the safest way just to do a lockdown and, and take the consequences after. Um, because it's not like well, I can, it's not like I can control state that says we're not going to do a lockdown. So you can't really compare what we have with like a state that's just open, open, you know, like America yeah. speaking, you know. Well, you know, the thing is, you know, uh, I I don't envy being somebody in position of political leadership these days, because with technology, there's always trade offs. And I think we see a beautiful illustration of that as we look at the COVID-19 pandemic and our response to it. There are trade-offs. That's the nature of technology inherently. And, and so you never can win-win. It's just, you have to give something up in order to gain something. And so people that are trying to make decisions are really caught in, in, this, in this dilemma of having essentially a no-win, no-win scenarios. It, no matter what decision they make, it's going to be viewed as the wrong decision. And so this is, I, I have enormous amount of sympathy and respect for people that I think are trying for the most part to do their very best. And one of the things that I think is interesting is even though in the United States, and I think this is obviously true in, in Great Britain, it's, we're becoming increasingly secular cultures, but yet there there's, wasn't even a moment's hesitation on the part of most people to say, if it's a choice between seeing people dying in the streets because we don't have adequate hospital capacity or essentially having our economy essentially driven into the ground, we will we'll choose driving our economy into the ground. And, and what's implicit in that is that we have a very high regard for human life, for the value of human life. And so you see the Christian worldview actually still having echoes of influence. Exactly. So um, a, lot of, a lot of Christians that are, that read like, Book of Revelation in particular, they read about certain things like the Mark of the Beast and it seems like a very biological type thing. So the ones that know about transhumanism probably really scares them. Um, but in order to un- understand the, the so-called, uh, well, the transhuman agenda, um, you have to really put yourself in the shoes of the the atheist or the agnostic. And uh, if, I was a, if I was an atheist, or agnostic, I would be probably willing to put up with anything that extends my life um, without without reservations, really. So I can understand why there is a motivation behind this this thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as you said, think about what it would be like if you were an atheist. And in a sense, you know, it's a very bleak outlook on your future, because once you die, that's it. You're dead. Once humanity is extinct, that's over with. And and so you know you you wind up in the, in a mindset of nihilism, right? There's just there's nothing, you know, uh, beyond this lifetime. And so with transhumanism, it actually creates an eschatology for an atheist. It gives actually hope, purpose, and destiny 
for individuals, but also for humanity as a species. And, you know, and I think in, implicit in the thinking of many people that are uh, advocating for transhumanism is this recognition that somehow human life is really valuable and that humanity as a species is really special Be- because nobody is lamenting the fact that maybe one day, uh, you know, animals are going to go extinct. I mean, people are concerned about that, but nobody is looking at what do we do to extend the life expectancy, you know, of wildebeests in, in the of Africa or something like that, you know, or, or what can we do to improve the quality of these animals' lives? But, and so we're willing to throw an enormous amount of resources, and this goes beyond just simply survival of the species or, or survival instinct. This is something that's much more deeply rooted where, you know, there's a recognition that there's really genuine value to human life. And, and so, you know, the, the transhumanist agenda is extremely appealing because it means that me as an individual, I can somehow still persist. I can still exist. And, and, and that's viewed as being, you know, extremely important and extremely valuable or that that humanity will not disappear, but will still persist in some form uh, so that we can, uh, you know, ultimately accomplish our destiny as a species. Many transhumanists see humanity populating, you know, the, the totality of the universe, uh, particularly if you, you achieve the, the singularity of Ray Kurzweil, you know, that that would then create the pathway by which you could live forever in a machine context and, and explore all kinds of areas of the universe that otherwise would be uh, uninhabitable for a biological organism. But for a machine, that machine could thrive in those environments or, or persist in those environments. And so, you know, you begin to uh, see something really ex- that's exposed uh, in the transhumanist agenda about our fundamental needs as human beings, which is hope, purpose, and destiny, which is precisely what the gospel offers. So the, the let's try and uh, so we'll say like the this the space faring hopefully when we say transhumanist in this sense we'll we'll, we'll mean the uh, space faring live forever type person. So when a transhumanist says they want to live forever, how long do they actually mean for, like that? How how long do they want their consciousness to be aware? When they say they want I think the the idea would be that they would desire to persist for as long as as is is practically possible. I mean, eventually the universe is is going to succumb to heat death as the universe continues to expand. Eventually, we'll reach the point where uh, the expansion will be so rapid and so extensive that you know um, that 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 uh, the universe will in effect experience you know, some kind of heat death. So there's there's ultimately no hope and purpose and destiny for an atheist beyond the physical existence of this universe. So the hope would be to to persist as long as, as possible uh, within the universe prior to the time where consciousness no longer would be physically, you know, possible. And of course, this is, again, a, a counterfeit eschatology in the sense that it really falls short of what uh, Christianity offers, which is uh, an, exi- an eternal existence, um, you know, in the presence of, of the Lord and, and, and the people that are a part of the, you know, the Lord's family as, as his, as his disciples, as his children. So it's a, it's a very rich eschatology that's being offered by the Christian worldview and a rather meager one, frankly, that's offered by 
a transhumanist uh, vision. But nevertheless, if, if it's that or essentially extinction, uh, you know, your existence terminating. And so people who have an atheistic worldview would rather have, you know, this, this uh, limited eternal life, if you will, um, this limited immortality than, you know, than to die young, I suppose. So everything that we can relate to is basically biological humanity. When they say they want to persist forever, do they mean in a biological form or in a machine form? Um, I think the most reasonable view, I mean, if you're a transhumanist, the most, if you want to live for an extended period of time, it's going to have to be free from the biological form and it's going to have to be in a machine context with the assumption is that our consciousness can be uploaded it with integrity into a machine framework, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that's a big if, <laughs> you know, and, and as a, as a Christian who sees humanity as being both material as well as uh, immaterial, you know, that, that we have a biological component and a spiritual component. I don't think in, in our, and our consciousness is intertwined with our spiritual makeup. I don't think we're ever going to be able to upload our conscious into a machine framework. I'm highly skeptical of that because of my worldview. But for people that are, you know, transhumanists who see the the brain and the mind as being the same thing, or sees the mind as an emergent property that, you know, arises out of the complexity of the brain, you know, they they operate with the view that hey, this is. Uh, this idea of uploading my mind is is absolutely a possibility. And of course, when you see advances that are happening in com- computer brain interface technology where you know you can develop these interfaces that allow people to control computer hardware and software with their with their minds, with their their brain activity, that that then you know allows them because of the internet to begin to in- exert influence. Uh, in a non-local manner, where they can have influence over events that are happening in the other part, in another part of the world, that they could, in principle, interact and engage other minds uh, in in virtual reality, for example. And, and so, those kinds of technological advances that are happening, which have all again very good medical uses, can also again fuel this the prospects or the hope. Uh, of, of what uh, of the transhumanist agenda, and so and so for me, it's not always so much what can we actually do technologically, but it's what people believe we can do technologically that's going to really shape the way they think about things like transhumanism. And so, if you think a mind upload is possible, and the work in computer brain interface technology nudges you towards that direction, then you likely are going to be putting your faith in the hope that one day we will be able to upload our mind and that that will actually be, you know, the source of our salvation. Yeah, as Christians, we believe that the body is uh, three parts, the spirit and the soul and and the, the flesh, in a sense. And uh, if the body dies, we believe the soul goes to basically a holding place uh, to await the, the, day of, the day of judgment. Um but however, let's go back. If I put myself back into the uh, the atheist mindset, and I want to sell this idea of being able to upload my consciousness to my machine, 
I would find it very hard to convince uh, <laughs> the, p- the person I'm selling this uh, service to uh, that if I take the person's consciousness, it's actually the current instance of consciousness versus a copy. Because say I wanted to pay a cybernet or something like that, the uh, you know a billion pounds to, or say a million pounds to upload my consciousness, I would want to know that my consciousness is actually my current consciousness. I don't want to have some copy of me uploaded, right? And then I, I, cease, I cease to exist, but the other one exists, you know? That's the, that's the dilemma. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, is that if you uploaded your consciousness, it, is it now just a digital copy of you that then is going to go off and have its own independence, yeah. our own independent existence, you know, separate from you? And so, in a sense, what you you've not really saved yourself, but you've saved a copy of yourself. Right, and and you still are going to go extinct. Yeah, you know, uh, you're still going to disappear. So, and it'd be very hard to prove that. that. Because you can imagine, yes, if other it, than you can imagine if that worked uh, somehow, like if, if if they could clone your consciousness, right, and then they ask the machine, they says, okay, are you the real Nikos? And the machines will say, yes, I'm the real Nikos, but it's not. It's it's the copy of you that's speaking. Right, you're still in the same body. Or, or you've disappeared, right? Right, right. That's right, yeah. And so the only way you would ever approve that to be otherwise would be to actually run those experiments <laughs> on people, right? Yeah. And, and who, wants to vol- who wants to volunteer for that? So, yeah. Yeah, but, if, but, you, but the copy would think that they would still have the memory of being in the last body that they were in. So the copy would think that um, they're the real person. But the original person, yeah, this is this is science fiction. Of course, we're having a bit of fun here. But you can see the problem of this. People yep. come up with this idea: yeah, we're going to we're going to be able to upload your conscience, but it's almost impossible. To, I just can't think of a way they could prove that. Even though I don't believe it's possible, but yep. you know, we're giving them a, we're giving them a chance here. Well, you know, this is actually um, for people that are. Uh, philosophical critics of the transhumanist movement, they refer to this as the salvation paradox, is that through the use of technology, you're looking to save yourself. But what you've done is you have either created a copy of yourself or you've modified yourself to such a degree that what you are saving is no longer yourself, but it's that entity that you have created. And so that's the, the, you know, the, the salvation paradox that's connected with transhumanism. And I think the point you're making uh, is, is another manifestation of that salvation paradox. Yeah. And in, in a sense, they could almost create their own version of, of hell. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I had, to, I had some, sometimes I would think what's the worst possible thing that could happen to me. And that would be basically in outer space in complete silence with, um, no way to to cease existence and to to always be there and, and never been able to to you know, perish just just being in a space forever and ever and ever and knowing that you're never going to get out of it what's that now that transhumanism speaking from a completely uh, atheistic um you know we both believe that the soul can't be transferred like this but 
according to their worldview, they could create something potentially that you could exist consciously in a machine somewhere and people would forget about you like you forget in some Bitcoin in a hard drive or whatever, you know, like or, or some, some uh, old photographs. And you could exist in that place and no one would know about it and you'd be there conscious forever and ever. I mean... Yeah, high stakes, yeah, right? Yeah, that that's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're hitting upon some some, you know, again, these paradoxes that um, that kind of uh, you know a beleaguer the, the, the transhumanist vision. I mean, this is the, the you know the, the the point is that you know or the broader point, and that is again, we we many times we don't think through. Uh, all the consequences of technology, or uh, we may, uh, uh, you know, discover that there are these consequences that we could never have even foreseen that arise because of a technology. And and so this is the the history of technology is always the idea of unanticipated, un, un, unintended consequences that really uh, create more pain and suffering than what the technology was actually designed uh, to to you know to address, and while you may successfully have solved one set of problems, you've created a set of problems that are far worse. And so this is why, you know, the the, the transhumanist you know gospel, if you will, uh, is really a false gospel. Is because it can, you know, our experience with technology is it never can actually truly deliver on its promises. It never has, and it never will be able to. And, and so it. Um, we we just want to be very very careful, uh, as as you know, in terms of what we ultimately place our hope and our trust in, and and we we want to be critical about evaluating um, you know the the claims and and the and the promises that are coming with the transhumanist vision, you know, uh, and uh, you know, I, and even when you think about what's going on with COVID nineteen. I mean, some of the, the technological solutions to, you know, how do we battle the COVID-19 pandemic essentially are, are overlapping. Those, those solutions are overlapping with uh, technologies that, are, that would be, you know, um, important for the transhumanist agenda. And so as we begin to implement some of these solutions to battle the COVID-19 pandemic, given again, how much fear is associated with it and how desperately people are turning to science to solve these problems, um, you actually are making people much more comfortable with being gene edited, having their genomes genetically altered, or having bioimplants. And so, you know, as the the COVID-19 pandemic progresses and we look for ways to treat it and we, we bring to bear even more and more sophisticated technology, this is all well and good, and, and it's it's a wonderful thing by all means. But on the other hand, it's just going to make people that much closer psychologically, as well as uh, uh, you know culturally, to I- accepting the idea that modifying our bodies with technology is actually a normal uh, thing to do. It's an acceptable thing to do. It's a necessary thing to do. And once that mindset takes hold. Transhumanism is going to become more and more alluring uh, to to the average person on the street who just wants to live a better quality of life and live as long as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see, I don't see things. Um, I mean, I want to live as long as possible. 
And uh, I would love to see cancer eradicated. I'd love to see Alzheimer's. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, just to reiterate, we're both not anti-science. We both want, you know, better quality of life. I mean, I would rather have good quality of life until I pass on rather than live for too long and have a really bad quality of life, you know. Yes, I mean, I would too. (laughs) Well, you know, the thing is, as as I get older, you know, I'm starting to become an old codger these days, it feels like, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, it's, there's, there's just a lot of aches and pains and things that begin to go wrong as as you get older. It's really frustrating, man, isn't it? It's horrible. And and the things that you used to be able to do, you suddenly can't do them anymore. You know, and uh, and so, you know, the, the idea of somebody coming in and and, you know, modifying my body in some way to restore, you know, a, a capability that I've lost or to even maybe give me capabilities that I wish I could have had, but I never did have, uh, you know, it, it's it's easy to get to to convince yourself that that would actually make you happier, that that would make life better, you know? And so, um, you know, as, as you, as you get older, you know, it, the, the appeal of, of the, what transhumanists are offering, you know, is, is very real. So it's, 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 it's for, for Christians, they, we basically believe in the laws of the land and the scriptures or the Holy Bible does the Bible actually have a position on this transhumanism thing? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and um, I'm not so sure that the Bible, one way or the other, says that you know enhancing ourselves is is uh, necessarily something that we shouldn't do. But I'm not don't th- see any passage in Scripture that says enhancing ourselves is something that we should do. Uh, and so I think, you know, in a sense, Scripture is silent on that. But I, I get the idea, though, that as we mature as Christians, you know, um, you know, Paul is is you know uh, talking about you know to live is gain, uh, you know, or to to you know that that you know his preference would be to be with Christ, right, and that. To die is to gain, to to gain everything that he you know wants, which is to be with Christ. But that if he is to live, then he's going to do everything he can to live for Christ. And so that's a very different mentality, I think, than maybe even the one that you and I are espousing here, where we say, "Hey, we want the best quality of life. We want to live as long as we possibly can." Uh, and so Paul had a you know a, a very different attitude that as long as he was here on earth, he was going to serve. Christ, he was going to do what he could to to share and spread the gospel, uh, but that his ultimate reward was not here, you know. But it was w- when he was going to be go to be in Christ's presence, and then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, and um, and so because of that, I think as Christians, really this desire that we have to have you know an extended physical existence, the question becomes you know why do you want that right? Do you want that extended physical existence because you you don't feel like you're done serving the Lord here? That's one thing, you know. Or are you going to have enhancements because it's going to allow you to be more effective in in ministry, more effective in in in, in sharing the gospel and serving others? Or 
do you want it because uh, uh, you know for for more selfish reasons or more selfish gains? So I could easily see uh, somebody using you know enhancement technology as a Christian and using it in a way that actually extends their life, but it's to the glory of God. I mean, we we probably are you know both of us are aware of you know Ravi Zacharias passing just a few days ago, or yeah. uh, earlier this year Norm Geisler died. You know, and uh, and so, or or just recently, Norm Geisler died. David, you know, David Poston as well, English chap. Yes, yes, and so these are people that are heroes of the faith to many people who lived an incredible lives in ministry. And I think we all, as a church, would say, wouldn't it be wonderful if these you know these fine ministers of the gospel could still be with us? That the church would benefit, and that 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 lives would be transformed. By their, you know, by those people being able to extend their time here, you know, and so you could see reasons why, legitimately, as a Christian, you would want enhancements. Or if I enhance myself, would I be able to serve, you know, communities better, uh, you know, that that desperately need, that are marginalized, that desperately need help? If I could carry out a genetic modification on myself and suddenly make myself now resistant to certain pathogens. If I was a, then a, somebody that was a medical missionary, I could then go into parts of the world where that, that particular pathogen is running on, amok, and I could then minister to people in that environment. You know, for example, um, it, is, it, it is possible to create human beings uh, through ge- gene editing of, of human embryos so that you would be resistant to the HIV virus. If you remember about a year and a half ago, this uh, scientist in China that did the very first CRISPR gene editing on human embryos uh, and then implanted those embryos into the womb of a woman who carried them to full term, you know, and created the very first human beings that were genetic mod- genetically modified. What he did is he used CRISPR to disable a gene that codes for something called the CCR5 re- uh, protein, which is a cell surface re- protein that is the binding site for the HIV virus. That's how it gains entry into, into cells. But if you have a mutation in that gene, the virus can't bind, and people with that mutation are naturally resistant to HIV. So what he was doing as proof of principle was to say, hey, I could actually create uh, human beings that would be resistant to HIV, uh, and that this would be a way for us to, you know, to solve the AIDS uh, crisis that China is facing. Well, you could easily see that, that extending that idea to say, could I actually modify myself so that I'm resistant to the Ebola virus, that the Ebola virus can't gain entry into my cells? Uh, then I could go into the you know parts of Africa where people are where there's an Ebola outbreak, and I could medically minister to those people without any kind of fear of of reprisal, you know, of, of, to my health, you know. And so that would be an instance where I could I would be really conflicted. Because yes, that would be a wonderful use of technology that actually makes that person able to to minister to people uh, without any kind of concern for their own health and safety because their health and safety isn't actually jeopardized. Uh, And and of course, there are heroic people that will do this and put their life in harm's way for the sake of other people. But if you could use technology in such a way that you wouldn't have to, you know, think about again – that the the ministry that would be possible, the service to humanity that would be possible, 
And so this is where the challenge comes, I think, is that that you could use this technology in a way that would be perfectly in line with, I think, kingdom principles and, and the, 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 you know, the spirit of what um, the Christian life is about and, and you know, and our calling uh, to love others and to love God. Yes, that's really good thoughts there. What I like to do sometimes is to do thought experiments and, and put myself in other person's shoes. Um, so I'm going to put myself in the, the atheist shoes again. And well, I'm going, to, I'm going to class atheists and agnostics kind of similar. So the agnostic looks at basically us as Christians, and we we and they probably think to themselves they claim to have this relationship with God, with Jesus, and all that kind of stuff. But from the outside, it's probably it's difficult to actually perceive something that's internal to us. But the only the only way I, I think before I was a, a um, Christian. Um, the, what what caught my attention was the way these people and this these certain Christians cared for each other that I I didn't really see I, it was it was amazing was, and that's what drew me to, towards it. it was like something that was just beyond the level of just um, relationships that you see in everyday life people actually genuinely they care for each other and that's that's what originally attracted me to it was was love um, from that from an outside perspective so. Um, that's why I believe it's very important for us as Christians to be humble and to not be so, um, you know, when we, when we talk about our faith, we need to be uh, respectful, hum- humble and servant-hearted. Yeah, yeah, well well, well stated. And, and so, you know, a lot of times when it comes to these kinds of emerging technologies, you know, when, when people that are, you know, non-theists that that are non-Christians see, you know, Christians, uh, you know, responding arrogantly and without any kind of thought to these emerging technologies, or they see Christians standing in the way of these emerging technologies when these emerging technologies could do so much good that they really develop a a really uh, bad perspective, a bad view on the Christian faith and on Christians and so that's why it's so important that we really are thoughtful about, you know, how these technologies should be used. And if, if there's ever a place where we are raising questions about technologies, it always should be because we see that technology is actually causing harm, not good, or that we see that, that technology running the risk of marginalizing human beings, you know, creating, you know, scenarios or situations of injustice you know, or that, you know, we, we see the technology again is, is really being uh, misused or, or being, you know, so dangerous that it would have the opposite effect of, of, of uh, what it's intended. So we want to make sure that if we ever are engaging in critiquing a technology, it's, it's for the right reasons, not just simply because, um, you know, we have, um, you know, s- certain um, – we, we just want to make sure that we're engaging it well and, and in a thoughtful way where people recognize that if we do have opposition to it, it's, it's, it's an opposition that's born out of, uh, the, out of love for, uh, people, not, you know, not, um, out of, con- out of some kind of theological concern, you know, um, that, that may or may not be valid. 
Yeah. I think in, in the Bible, the only warning that I can see that would relate to transhumanism is this Mark of the Beast. And uh, it's quite a famous thing, the Mark of the Beast, because like, Iron Maiden made us, Iron Maiden, the heavy metal band, make it, made a song about it. Um, but then, I think a lot of people have heard of this word, the Mark of the Beast, even even like people that are not familiar with the Bible. Um, and the Mark of the Beast in the scripture, contra Revelation, is something that is a mark in either the forehead or the palm of the hands. And I think that's what scares all science-minded Christians. They they put two and two together, transhumanism and this mark of the beast. Um, but like I say, the Bible was written in a language that back then they wouldn't understand much about genetics and you know electronics. But it's still we believe that the Book of Revelation is relevant for today. So, do you have you had any thought processes around what this mark of the beast could actually be? I, uh, I I don't know, <laughs> uh, but you know you, you know for example when you start talking about bio implants, this is where I think as a Christian you really need to uh, to to pause for a minute and think about it and and for example I don't have a fundamental problem with computer brain interface uh, technology which can be either in, uh, you know non invasive or semi invasive or invasive where you are you know, having this com- computer device that you are interfacing with the electrical activity in the brain, because that again can be a lot used to to con- for people to control computer hardware and computer software, which could have enormous amount of, of medical benefits. But to me, you know, you also are seeing as part of the transhumanist movement the idea of of, of implanting electronics within our, our biological makeup, where those electronics now extend our capacities, uh, you know, and enhance our capacities, uh, you know, and, and so it's these implants that I think are very well could be understood as being the mark of the beast. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, uh, one of the, the, the questions you sent me was about, you know, the, the virus tracing implants, you know, and, and, you know, this is really very interesting technology because, you can actually add, for example, quantum, you know, uh, quantum dots to uh, a, a viral, uh, sorry, a vaccine cocktail, so that when you, in, you know, vaccinate somebody, these quantum dots, which are these, you know, nanoscale uh, uh, semiconductors that, you know, give off or emit light, you know, that that these <laughs> that these you know micro quantum dots, I'm sorry, could could be used to, to determine if somebody had a vaccine or not, right? Uh, and so this is would be a very quick way to, to, to tag people. And then you could in, envision, you know, in the near future, uh, that if you don't have proof or certification of having a vac- vaccine, you're not going to be allowed to travel. You won't be, you could even envision you're not allowed to get on public transportations. You're not allowed to go to large gatherings where there's a large number of people. You may not be admitted into certain stores or other, you know, uh, other, uh, you know, public venues. And so now you're starting to <laughs> see technology basically being used in such a way to really make it either possible or impossible for somebody to participate in society. And when that type of thing happens, I think you're, you, you are 
well within your your rights to start wondering, are we now st- on a stepping stone pathway towards, you know, something that we would understand from the book of Revelation as, as the mark of the beast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so here's a place where, you know, technology that's being designed really for good purposes, because you want to have some mechanism to ensure public health, um, you know, th- that that something that is designed for good could actually then ultimately take you down a pathway that would lead to a technology that would be consistent with what you see, you know, in the book of Revelation. And, and uh, so anyway, yeah, um, when you start talking about bioimplants, that's when you have to start asking those kind of questions. Mm. So the the book of Revelation, the, the punishments for taking the mark of the beast are ultimate in price, essentially it's damnation. So it's something that I think Christian thought leaders should should be able to um, articulate. But in the, in the book of Revelation, it's also tied to, to worshipping the mark of the beast. So I think that it would be unfair of God to just condemn someone for taking this mark for just like an amoral science transactional. I think it when it when it comes out, people will know that this mark of the beast is something that is directly opposed to um, God's command to not worship the beast. Yeah, and and it would be really hard, you know, for me to say that the use of quantum dots in 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 a in a SARS two you know coronavirus vaccine would be uh, something that would be the mark of the beast. When again, the the intent behind doing that is to have a very quick and efficient way to to track uh, or, or to make sure that people do indeed have been vaccinated. And if you have been vaccinated, to, to give you the the rights and the privileges to to do certain things. I, I find that hard to think that that would be the mark of the beast, given the motivation behind doing it. Now, there's a whole host of ethical issues about, are you robbing people of their personal freedom? Or is it an invasion of people's, uh, you know, privacy? You know, there's even a discussion that eventually one day, everybody will carry with them, you know, essentially, uh, because of these quantum dots, a a history of of your your vaccination history. So immediately people can know exactly, at that point in time, all the vaccines that you've had, and what you've been vaccinated for, what you haven't been vaccinated for. And so again, you know, that that could be something that, you know, could be relatively not only benign, but actually could be really beneficial in terms of managing public health. You know, and, and whenever you're dealing with public health issues, you always are encroaching on people's freedoms. Uh, potentially, you always are encroaching on people's privacy. Uh, and so, um, but but again, if you can do uh, that kind of tracking, if the technology exists through the use of bio implants for that kind of tracking, then it means that the, the technology is now available, at least, or you're moving very rapidly towards the technology that you would need for people to have the mark of the beast, right? Yeah. I think two years ago, we couldn't really imagine the situation that has accelerated this, this, uh, outrolling of science in the general public um we heard of viruses we heard you know bill gates lecture in 2015 but 
it's hard. We we probably found it hard to believe it could have happened in our lifetime, and it happened so quickly. You know, the stock market didn't realize there was this virus going around the world until mid February. No one believed it would be that bad. So, uh, interesting days yeah, to be alive. Yeah, that's you know, and and you know, when you suggested this topic, you know, is the COVID nineteen pandemic accelerating the transhumanist agenda? It is interesting that in the span of just a few months, you know, suddenly this idea of uh, you know uh, of again you know tr- um, transhumanism being uh, uh, being even that much more ac- accessible, that much more palatable. Uh, to the uh, to the general public, you know, is is it's remarkable that in just a short period of time we've gone from transhumanism being a, a kind of a marginalized idea to an idea that's gaining credibility in the mainstream to now an idea that uh, is is really on the cusp of being implemented, you know, and and so for example with you know a, as I mentioned before, you know. Um, we do have the technology now with CRISPR gene editing uh, to, to create human beings that would be resistant to different viruses. And so you could easily see, you know, that this becomes part of, you know, what parents decide to do when they have a child is, you know, they do in vitro fertilization and they say, we want our child to be resistant to this disease, this disease, and this disease. And that can be attained by doing genetic modifications to the genome in such a way that you then have cells that have uh, that that no longer are able to bind certain viruses. We that technology really is is exists for us to do something like that, and you could easily see more and more, uh, you know, gene editing packages developed that would allow you to attain that kind of resistance. And so, you know, the, for a parent, you know, that would be a wonderful thing. To, to know that your child could grow up and to live a life where they wouldn't have to fear from certain, you know, viral diseases. You know, and I've, I've heard stories about what it was like when polio, when there were, prior to the polio vaccine, how really, a, how frightening of an existence it, it was. And, you know, at that time, parents would do anything to make sure that their, their child would never contract polio. If they could be, you know, if there was something they could do to prevent their child from contracting polio, they would have done it. And so the polio vaccine really revolutionized things. Well, we're now on the the cusp of maybe seeing a a different type of revolution where CRISPR gene editing could be used to modify human beings at the embryo stage so that they no no longer would be, again, uh, susceptible to certain viruses. And you could see that that, that, uh, package growing to, to include uh, more and more, you know, viruses that you would be, again, inherently resistant to. Well, is that a, a medical use or is that a, a, a human enhancement? So you're now, again, in this gray zone. But once you start doing that, it becomes easier then to say, well, why don't we just then go ahead and, um, you know, uh, do the gene editing needed so that our child would be, you know, 20 percent stronger physically than than the average person that their physical strength would would transcend what would be natural biological limits right so you're just once you start 
you know, so this is where the technology pushes you into uh, a gray zone that suddenly makes, you know, um, acceptance of some of the transhumanist ideals easier and easier to do. You're, you know, or, you know, this idea of like CRISPR being used a, for genes. It's like boiling a toad in a pot. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and um, you know, for example, I was just reading that there's a, a team of researchers that think they can actually use CRISPR gene editing as a way to, as a, as a weapon to, to essentially battle the SARS-2 coronavirus. And the idea here is that you would essentially create, you know, uh, a guide RNA that would target specifically the, the, the genetic material of the SARS-2 coronavirus and that you could design that guide so it would uh, just, you know, delete certain regions of the SARS-2 coronavirus genome that would be critical regions. And then you just, they, they describe it as essentially a CRISPR tornado where you just, you know, infuse the patient with a lot, lot of the, the CRISPR gene editing packages that are targeted to the cells that the SARS-2 coronavirus would attack. And you just overwhelm that virus with the gene editing packages. But, but those gene editing packages would only cleave the, the SARS-2 coronavirus. And, and so this is a way you would reduce the viral load. So now you're using gene editing as, as an antiviral technology. And, and I can tell you that once you're able to target the gene editing package to the right cell, this is actually a very easy way to develop antivirals. Because then all you have to do is get the right guide RNA, and, and then the same gene editing package could treat a wide range of different uh, – or, or could, could be weaponized to, to take out a wide range of, of different viruses versus the very slow and laborious process of trying to develop antiviral drugs you know, that would slow down the you – know, the, the, um, uh, slow down kind of the life cycle – of the virus just long enough for your immune system to kick in and to clear the virus from your system with this, you know, CRISPR gene editing. This is a, once you get FDA approval for the concept, uh, and then all you're doing is changing the guide RNA, um, and maybe, and you, you've got different, you know, delivery mechanisms that all have FDA approval. You have now a very versatile way to treat viral infections, but Notice that, again, CRISPR is, is being used in the context of, of treating viruses. So the next step to say, why don't I just use CRISPR to, to modify myself? To, you know, it becomes uh, less of an impediment to, 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 to consider that, that particular option because you already are comfortable you know, doing that very thing. Or, or once you agree to have implants so that you can you know, monitor your health or, you know, allow people to, to be, to, to, you know, to recognize that you had a certain vaccination, um, that it becomes that much easier to, to insert an implant that would be used for something for some other purpose. Right. Yeah. So your book, your book, Humans 2.0 has been out for six months now. What have you been up to since, since then? Uh, well, uh, you know, still uh, have interest in in uh, in transhumanism, and I've spent you know quite a bit of time uh, talking about the idea of transhumanism, and really making the Christian community aware of 
this idea and the fact that this idea is not an idea that we should dismiss, but rather recognize that this really represents, I think, the chief competitor to the gospel uh, in the next several decades. And it's the transhumanist gospel is going to be a very alluring message, I think, for people that uh, you know are living in an increasingly secular world where, again, we increasingly are turning to science and technology to, to solve and address our problems. Uh, but, I, but I also have been uh, uh, working on a, another book uh, uh, called Actually Fit for a Purpose. It's a, a very different uh, a topic than what I did with the, the book Humans 2.0. This is actually a book about uh, the design of biochemical systems and specifically applying the anthropic principle uh, that uh, many people are familiar with in cosmology, but applying that to biochemical systems uh, and demonstrating that, that biochemical systems uh, appear to be designed for a purpose, uh, uh, just as the, the anthropic principle seems to uh, indicate that the universe itself has been designed for a purpose. Sounds fascinating. Well, uh, We'll need to have you on the show again to talk about that one. Yeah, that'd be I've, fun. I've, I don't think I've had a guest on yet three times. Yes, yeah, so like the URLs, what I do is I put the, the first name, second name, and then I put a dash number. So like this podcast will be the same as the last one, but it'll be Fazalzal dash two. But uh, yes. Oh, okay. But, um. So um. Let let put, let me just uh, put myself in the agnostic mindset again, and uh, the agnostics probably look at us as believers, and we're talking about Jesus and God and spiritual stuff, and a lot of them probably don't have a clue what we're talking about because they've never experienced it. So you, as a scientific person and observer, uh, in a sense, you can see things that you do that have spiritual results and uh, are repeatable and. I'm not saying like, like relationship with God is like a is like is is like a robotic thing or like deterministic thing. Of course, it's it's dynamic and we're always dependent on what God's will is. But can you just sort of distill what a relationship with God is like from a like a scientist perspective? Yeah. Well, uh, you, you know, in 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 many respects, I think that. Uh, my relationship with God as a scientist is really uh, no different than anybody's relationship with God, regardless of who they are. Because to me, I see it as as an actual relationship that you know I, uh, like everyone else who's a Christian, experience God, and that experience of God is in, in is in intimate ways. I you know see uh, to me um, evidence that God is at work. Uh, in the world around us, you know, and, um, and I, I, you know, see things that happen that, uh, just the, the coincidence, uh, you know, the coincidences that are involved are, are just mind blowing. And, you know, it just, it's evident that there seems to be a divine hand, you know, behind those kinds of things. Or I, I see so many instances where, um, uh, you know, we, I've prayed or been a, a part of a group of people that have prayed for somebody and, you know, those prayers are, are answered usually in ways that we couldn't even imagine. 
Uh, and so, you know, I do see, you know, through my experience, you know, as a, as a human being, evidence for God, because I'm experiencing God. But I don't know that, that my, my vocation as a scientist, you know, causes me to, to enter into those experiences any differently than anyone else. In fact, you know, I think that this idea of religious experiences that we have as believers is really very powerful evidence uh, that God is real, that God is involved in people's lives, uh, and that um, that the Christian experience uh, is is a true experience. That Christianity is true because of the experience that believers have that lines up with with um, with what Scripture teaches. You know, I, I see that as as real evidence. Uh, you know, it, it to me, it's just as um, meaningful evidence as somebody saying that, you know, I, I saw the the uh, you know, the the sunset uh, last night and the sky was red and in in pink and in yellow. You know that there are these incredible colors. You know, I um, may even if I've never seen a sunset before, uh, I would accept that that person's experience of the sunset, uh, if I, you know, because I would have, uh, unless I had a reason to, to question, uh, you know, their credibility or, uh, or I had a reason to think that they were being deceptive. And so likewise, I think when we have experiences as believers that, that really those experiences, which are very real to us, that, that are really transformative, uh, that make us better people, uh, should be, you know, counted as evidence uh, that God is real, because when we experience something, that experience of something is an indication that 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 which we experience is real. So, you know, so to me, I I, I see experience is is just as much valid evidence for God as uh, you know the scientific evidence that I see for a Creator's fingerprints in the world around us. Yeah. So, like. Our experiences of God are, are real to us, and like, can you imagine if somebody came to us and said, "I've I've seen uh, the sunset regularly for the last um, ten years every day," and you got to and tell them that's just a figment of your imagination; it didn't really happen. In a sense, that's what people who would disclaim that what we're experiencing isn't real. In a sense, that's the jump they're making to say, you know, they 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 can't prove that we didn't experience anything. And just because they don't believe in that, um, they're, they are, they are in of something they don't have any proof of. It's like, I can't, I couldn't tell somebody you didn't see a sunset the last, every day, the last 10 years. It's, it's your imagination. And you as a smart, intelligent person, um, I'm not saying smartness or intelligence makes you better than anybody else, you know, but I'm saying you have a proven track record in science and you are smart enough to know that if your relationship with God was all a figment of your imagination, by now you probably would have realized that um, it's all made, all made up. But we 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 state that we actually have a relationship with the person who is God that is external of us, and there's a, there's a sort of two two way communication, and um, that's why it's so important for us as Christians to. To nurture that time, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here on how because like, being an entrepreneur and working all these hours a week, it's uh, it's a challenge. 
Yep. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing about, you know, religious experiences is that you, know, you and I will have common religious experiences that, that in other words, it's not like I'm having experiences that are unique to me or you having experiences that are unique to you, but the people that are part of the church today around the world, independent of their culture and their, their backgrounds, uh, you know, have shared common experiences. Uh, there's a consistency to, to those experiences. Or if you go through church history, uh, the experiences that we have today are the same kinds of experiences that people have throughout uh, church history. And, and so, you know, it's hard to argue that all these people are somehow hallucinating or somehow were trying to be deceptive, you know, or somehow were, you know, having some kind of, me- you know, uh, mental breakdown, <laughs> right? But it, it's, I mean, it might be that some people would fall into those categories, but for everybody to have them, particularly when you look at the, the people that are claiming to have these experiences, they are trustworthy, upright people who are responsible, who have nothing to gain by relaying or conveying that they have those experiences. There's no gain, there's no motivation uh, for them to, to claim to have experiences that they didn't have. And so, and those experiences always tend to make them better people. And so when you, you put that all together as a package, you know, the, 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 the thing that's cool is that I can now take my experience that is very real to me and, tr- and, and is very transformative to me. And, and as I share that experience with a non-believer, it, it's an experience that is a shared experience across time and across culture with, with other people uh, who, again, have very different backgrounds than I have, but we all have experienced the same thing. And so, it, it, you know, going back to the sunset or the, you know, analogy that, if people all over the the world said we saw the sunset, right? You know, and I wasn't there to witness the sunset. You know, would I conclude that the sunset didn't happen, <laughs> right? Or that everybody was delusional or everybody was deceptive? Yeah, right. And and so that's I think that's the power of the collective, you know, religious experiences that that are part of uh, the church, the history of the church. Yeah. I think what the, the difficulty of a lot of agnostics is, is that they probably look at different religions and say, but they all claim to have these religious experiences, but yet the the worldviews are, are mutually exclusive. You can't have one truth, truth A and truth B, uh, be, be both real at the same time, because that would be uh, against the laws of logic. A cannot equal B, right? In all times, all places. So there's, for me... I used to be, I guess I used to be quite obnoxious in my in my in my telling people about um, my my Christianity because I used to try and con- convince them that it was real somehow. But I re- I think I've realised now is that put myself in their shoes. We as Christians, when we tell talk about our faith, we have to realise that it's not us that's going to be able to just ha- help them have that experience. We have to work with God and allow God to reveal them, them, reveal Himself to them after we speak. You know, because that's what the in in the New Testament talks a lot about how Paul Paul say brought the word and then God confirmed it with signs 
wonders and miracles. And I think that's a problem with a lot of, um, I'm not saying preaching is bad, but a lot of people, it's like they're trying to do all the God's work for him. You know, they're, they're trying to like, they're trying to like prove that God is real, but really we have to be, be able to work with God in a sense and allow signs and wonders mm-hmm. and miracles to happen. Yep, that's that's right. I it it, it takes a while uh, as uh, as as a uh, as a, somebody who's interested in evangelism and and apologetics. It takes a while to to you know to to develop the sensitivity uh, to to use you know uh, apologetics well, right, and and to use it not so much as a weapon or. Uh, or as a, as something that's a silver bullet, but really is something that equips you to engage people in really meaningful conversations. Um, and and you know it it also takes time to recognize that you really have to treat each person as a person and really care for that person. You know, first and foremost, you know, before your 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 message is going to be even entertained. Yeah. And just to be clear to people out there that probably wonder what on earth am I talking about? I'm talking about the churches and whatever. I'm not saying that the, you know, the, the scripture is very clear. It says, "Give an answer to anyone who asks you a question for the reason the hope is in you." What I'm just trying to say is that we have to be aware that also these these uh, signs of one, wonders and miracles are is common. It's common in the Book of Acts for that's how. Of all the religions out there, that's how you know which one is real because there is this power behind the you sharing the gospel plus the God himself confirming with signs, workings and miracles. And I realise now we could probably talk for another three hours. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I, uh, I think it's it's about time to... to yeah, you've got, you've got a meeting yeah. in five minutes, I know, yeah. so... But this has been fun. <laughs> yeah, I like this one. It's been refreshing, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate you know your your interest in what we're doing, and and uh, thanks so much for inviting me back. It's always been fun. It's always fun to hang with you. Yeah, it'd be also be good to get on get Hugh on again if he wants. Uh, well, I'm sure no he will. pressure. He, you know, I know he's a very in demand person. So yeah, but he never says no to stuff. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Well, I'll let you go. Yeah, well, God bless you and, and stay safe. Okay. And healthy and in good spirits. Thanks, buddy. And also, thank you, my listener, if you're still listening after this hour and 20 minutes. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And that was Fazal Rana, author of 2.0 and uh, a member of Reasons to Believe. Go check him out on the show notes. And we'll see you again shortly on Influencers Cafe. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>